0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle personal finance podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Dave Baxter and Mary McDougall from the Home Team and Christine Ross, Client Director and Head of Private Office at Handels Bank and Wealth Management. Chinese markets have had a tough start to the year with the coronavirus and rest in Hong Kong and Sino-US trade tensions. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect investors focused on the area to be apprehensive. Mary, you recently met the manager of a China equities fund. So is
1: he concerned about the effect of the coronavirus on markets? Hi, Leonora. Yes, so I met Dale Nichols, manager of Fidelity's China Special Situations Investment Trust, and his view seems to be in line with what we're hearing from many emerging markets or China-specific fund managers. While coronavirus is a terrible human tragedy, he doesn't think it negates from attractive long-term investment opportunities in China. Because when the markets opened after the extended lunar period this week, they fell about 9%, but they've already picked up quite significantly since then. Chinese forecasts put peak infections within the next few days, but health experts not affiliated with the government say it could peak in April or May. But Mr. Nichols says that while the situation is still very unclear, if it pans out the same as the SARS outbreak in 2003, which is what many people have compared it with, it's unlikely to have a significant long-term impact on Chinese markets. And he also notes that panic sell-offs can create a buying opportunity. And coronavirus aside, he thinks that consumption will be the big driver of growth in China. Um, And he's investing in companies that will cater to aspirational spending habits of the rising middle class, such as expensive cars and jewellery companies.
0: So he's, let's say, cautiously confident, from the sounds of it, on the long-term picture for China. What is he
1: concerned about Well, in the context of coronavirus, the sheer size of China makes it very difficult for the virus to be contained. And we've already seen it spread to a number of countries. And also, China's a much bigger, more important economic powerhouse than it was in 2003. So the knock-on effects can be much larger than, than what it's been compared with. And also the wet market means that other viruses can form. And then there's also the trade tensions. So, while he's welcomed phase one of the trade deal with the US, he's not overly bullish about phase two being fixed anytime soon.
0: Which of Fidelity China special situations holdings might
1: experience problems due to issues such as the coronavirus? So he's got a, a stake in which is an enormous online travel agent. Um, so that is, of course, going to have significant short-term impact among travel bans and very few people wanting to travel to China. But the long-term fundamentals are attractive because the Chinese population are looking to travel more, the rising middle class again, and only 14% of the Chinese population hold passports. So the growth potential is enormous.
0: Okay, thank you, Mary. And see this week's fun section for Mary's full update on Fidelity China special situations. Now, market volatility such as that caused by the coronavirus, can be mitigated by holding defensive investments and assets such as cash. But if you hold too much cash over the longer term, it can also have a drag effect on your returns. And this is also the case of funds. Now, funds often have a small allocation to cash, alongside the risk assets, which are their main focus. But in some cases, it's um, a lot more than a small allocation. So, Dave, just first of all, why do funds that are supposed to invest in risk assets hold any cash?
2: Well, Leonora. Uh, yeah, there are some reasons. So if you focus on areas that aren't particularly liquid, it might be good to have that buffer. Just because if people are going to, you know, try and redeem uh, money from your funds, then it will take you a long time to sell the assets. Um, so it's good to have that cash just to satisfy those requests.
0: What type of funds, you know, you have
2: I mean, there are... There are a few different examples. For example, the Woodford Equity Income Fund struggled because it didn't hold much cash. Mm. Also, you may get some small cap equity funds will hold higher levels of cash often because it's just harder to sell or buy and sell those assets.
0: Property funds. Property property as well.
2: Yep. Last year, we saw the M&G property funds suspended Mm. because basically, they didn't have enough cash to uh, kind of meet redemption requests. And lots of those funds have been holding very high levels of cash to, you know, just deal with that issue.
0: Okay, so we obviously, um, you know, got some good reasons here, perhaps for property funds or private equity, quasi private equity funds, however, you would have described Neil Woodford's funds to hold cash. But what about equity funds? Do we need to have it?
2: Yes and no. So a, a vanilla equity fund you could argue that a manager needs so-called dry powder in order to invest in markets if they think they're currently too expensive and if they fall, they can then you know, easily take those opportunities without having to sell something they already hold. Otherwise, though, you should perhaps um, scrutinise if an equity fund has higher cash levels because really you'd expect them to be fully invested or close to fully invested and then you can do things like hold your own cash within your portfolio.
0: Okay, what would be an example of say, of, a, of an equities fund that's maybe justified in having a, a chunky bit of cash?
2: One that's justified, uh, at least from um, their short and long term performance, you could argue, is a very popular UK equity funds, uh, Line Trust Special Situations. If you look at their fact sheet at the end of um, last year, they had around 8% in cash or kind of similar instruments. But Um, you know, that that looks fairly high. But if you look at their performance, then they are often at the top or near the top of their their peer group. And they've got a very good track record. Um, We did speak to Lion Trust about why they uh, hold so much cash. They said the current amount is in line with what they tend to hold. And they basically um, have that high level of cash in order to manage liquidity, which might be related to the fact they do hold some smaller companies. And just so, like I mentioned, they can kind of buy into things when uh, something looks attractive.
0: Okay. Now, you said that it's um, important to monitor what levels of cash your funds have. So how do you do this?
2: It's fairly straightforward. You just look at the fact sheet. Every month you get the fact sheet out and in the vast majority, if not all cases, funds will list their cash weighting.
0: Okay, I mean, that sounds um, simple. Are there any kind of catches or other things you should bear in mind when doing this? Yes,
2: yeah, there's, as always, there's plenty of uh, kind of catches, plenty of nuances. So, for example, say you look at a, um, a fact sheet and it has a high level of cash. It's advisable to keep looking at the one after and the one after that and just generally monitoring it because um, sometimes something like a large inflow or the sale of a holding might release a lot of cash and temporarily that fund may have a lot of cash, but that's not necessarily what it tends to do. Also, there are certain factors that can um, perhaps exaggerate the level of cash. So what's interesting is uh, a lot of funds use derivatives as sort of a straightforward way to get market exposure. If you do use derivatives, you need to hold extra cash as collateral um, to kind of offset that exposure. And that means that for some funds on the fact sheet, you end up having a really high level. But in practice, you're probably, you know, more fully invested than that figure suggests. One example is um, the BlackRock Emerging Markets Fund. If you look at the fact sheets from the end of December, that had a stated level of nearly 10% um, in cash or derivatives. But we spoke to them and... uh, Basically, it's the case where it's related to the derivatives. They have to have cash to offset that. And um, their true level of cash is normally somewhere between 0 and 5%.
0: Thank you, Dave. Some really helpful tips. And see this week's big theme for his full report on how to keep tabs on the cash levels in your funds. Now, Christine, we've been talking about how much cash is appropriate in funds, but how much cash should private individuals hold?
3: Hello, Leonora. As a guide, I usually suggest keeping an amount of cash equal to about six months expenditure. On top of which, I'd add any sums that we're going to pay out over the next couple of years. For example, to buy a new car, a tax bill that's due, that's money that you're not going to want to invest and is better held in a high interest deposit account.
0: Okay. Now, um, you, you you mentioned one or two things and like buying a car. Um, But just to sum up, you know, what are some of the really important uses for, you know, cash and having this liquid cash in, um, you know, um, your portfolio, your bank account?
3: If somebody's working, so they're relying on their earnings, if they lost their job, and they're fully invested, and if unfortunately, it coincided with a market downturn, it's just not the right time to try to get hold of their money. So, whilst money can work harder in the markets over the long term, we want to be able to leave it there for a number of years to ride out the ups and downs and hopefully make a good return. Therefore, keeping a sum of cash for unforeseen eventualities is the right thing to do from a planning point of view. Some people will feel that six months' money is far too much. Others, because of the nature of their outgoings, will need longer than that, especially if it's going to take them longer to find another job or if they're self-employed and they're going through a downturn at that time. So it's just sensible
0: planning, having a rainy day fund. Okay. Um, now, there's a lot of market uncertainty at the moment, um, and some markets appear expensive. So is this a justification to actually hold cash and perhaps more than six months expenditure rather than invest it in? even if you've got a sufficiently long investment horizon and high-risk appetite? There are times when markets appear expensive, so we hold back.
3: Then perhaps a year later, we wish we'd invested because in hindsight, um, there's been a nice upward climb. There's no single right answer. But assuming there's an intention to invest for the long term, then it's helpful sometimes to phase investments over several months. If markets increase, then ideally it would... we would have been better off making one single investment. But as we saw in the last quarter of twenty eighteen, markets took a downturn, but only for a short period. And by investing those funds gradually, that would have lessened the impact. And actually, we'd have bought more for our money. So we generally encourage when investments are being made from cash to consider phasing over several months. And just how many months that is really depends on the individual and how much money's being invested. OK,
0: thank you, Christine. Some really helpful points. Now, the all-party parliamentary group on inheritance and intergenerational fairness has recently recommended slashing inheritance tax from 40% to 10% and scrapping those reliefs. Um, This sounds quite a a turnabout, but Christine, it's... It is just a recommendation. So how likely is it to happen? Um, The report
3: is radical and it's provoked lots of conversation. But from speaking to other professionals, and I certainly have no inside track here, um, I would doubt that we will see an overhaul of the inheritance tax regime. But we've now seen two reports, this one and last year, a second report from the Office for Tax Simplification that was commissioned by government, And both have focused on the area of lifetime giving. We've seen a regime where we can give away as much money as we wish within our lifetime. And providing we live for seven years, there's no inheritance tax payable. I think that whilst this will continue, there are going to be some changes, whether in the forthcoming budget or not, I don't know. Um, But I think that that is one particular area where there might be at least some tidying up, if not some more radical change.
0: Okay, I suppose that kind of complicates things in a way because nobody knows for certain what's happening. Um, In view of that, should investors alter their IHT planning in any way in the meantime?
3: I don't normally advocate reacting suddenly just because of what might change in a budget. But I'd look at it from this way. If there is already an intention to make some gifts, perhaps to help children onto the property ladder, and that's something that individuals want to do and are able to do without um, affecting their own standard of living, then I'd probably get on with it. If it's something you're going to do anyway, it's not just a reaction to a possible change, um, it's worth taking action.
0: Okay. Um, Just turning to, you know, the kind of people that might be involved, who currently falls into the agency bracket, who might this affect and who might have to think about stuff here? Well, inheritance tax is paid on... Worldwide assets above
3: a threshold of three hundred and twenty-five thousand. There's also something called the residence nil rate band, which has been introduced gradually over the last few years. And by April this year, we'll give each individual another hundred and seventy-five thousand. So, for a married couple, where assets pass on the first death to the survivor, there will be a total on the second death of a million pounds of allowance against inheritance tax but part of that is specifically for the main residence if the house is owned. The main residence no rate right band is fairly complicated and much more so than it was intended to be. Um, and this extra allowance is only available for estates valued up to £2 million. It tapers away after that. But broadly, everything we own after the deduction of any debts is subject to inheritance tax above those limits at 40%.
0: No, um, I think as we said before, um, you know, who knows what's happening. So, in the short term, um, what can people who, you know might incur IHT due to mitigate it in the short term. Well, the most effective
3: form of inheritance tax planning generally involves giving it away or depriving oneself of the assets, for example, by making gifts into a family trust where the donor can't benefit, but where it is possible to exercise some control over the family money, both in the individual's lifetime and thereafter by appointing trustees. Trusts have their own tax regime and they can be complex but can be valuable in certain family situations, particularly where there's sort of a more complex family dynamic. But overall, gifts and gifts into trust are probably the most effective methods of IHT planning. There are also certain investments that do offer relief from inheritance tax. These tend to be at the top of the risk scale because there's no free lunch here, but they can be valid for some individuals if they understand these private equity investments and are willing to take that level of risk and long-term investment. What would be an example of this? Something like the Enterprise Investment Scheme. So investments qualifying under that scheme have um, some income tax relief in some cases, so 30%. There are some caveats around percentage of ownership of a company there. Um, But after two years of ownership, qualify for something called business property relief, which gives um, relief from inheritance tax on the uh, death of the owner. So yes, they are seen as a sort of a IHT mitigation strategy. I'd look at it more first and foremost as an investment choice, which happens to have a tax benefit rather than investing solely in those investments for the inheritance tax reliefs.
0: Thank you, Christine. Some really helpful points. With the end of the tax year approaching, many investors are sensibly focused on getting as many of investments as possible into tax-efficient wrappers – but there are a wide range of these and offer, for example, individual savings accounts, ISAs and pensions. So it's not just a case of bunging your assets into whichever tax-efficient wrapper first springs to mind, but choosing the ones that are most appropriate for your investment purposes. So, Christine, many people build up investment portfolios, for example, to help fund their retirement. In these cases, should pensions... The first port of call? When retirement is a long way off, for
3: many it's just a case of starting to put some money away. Most savers turn to pensions as a long term savings vehicle because they're the most tax efficient option and they offer tax relief up front and tax free growth. Employees will also benefit from a contribution from their employer, so that enhances it further. The turn off for some people is the fact that. Under current rules, they can't get their hands on the money until they're at least age 55. So there's a dilemma. Should I save for my retirement or for my first home? The lifetime ISA, or known as Lisa, has some way gone to address this, Um, although I'm not sure it's been as popular as it was perhaps hoped. Um, But that is the big issue. I can't get my hands on the money. Retirement's a long way off. People go into pension schemes if they're employed because it's their they are also enrolled, and that's a good thing. But in the long run, we will end up saving using a variety of vehicles over the longer term.
0: Okay, so I mean, other than pensions, um, you know, what tax-efficient vehicles could you consider for retirement saving, and why? The most common vehicle, other than holding
3: assets directly, is to use an ISA. The limits have increased over the years, so the total that any one individual over 18 can put into an ISA is is £20,000 a year. So that's fairly significant for many. Um, we've also seen changes to the pension regime in retirement that has now caused people to think about where they draw their money from. So they've saved in a variety of vehicles, and we shouldn't forget that... Investing our own personal names is efficient in that we have a capital gains tax allowance each year against profits of £12,000. We have a dividend allowance of £2,000. So whilst we shouldn't let the proverbial tax tail wag the, the investment dog, at the same time it's worth thinking around these things because if we can increase our return from our investments through tax efficiency, we may take a view that we can take slightly less risk and still get the same overall result. So, certainly, looking at holding investments directly, looking at using ISAs, using pensions, results in in what I call just money for when you stop working.
0: The word pension almost sort of goes out of a focus there. Okay. Now, you touched on this before. Big question. Um, You know, which one do you prioritise? And do you put bit into each of them how you know how do you decide i think it's very difficult
3: i think if somebody is employed they automatically now go into a pension scheme and very often they will be required to put an amount of money in which um in some organizations is matched by the employer or the employer puts the the minimum that's required now um so that's what people start off with but with other savings the most obvious next option is the isa because all of its returns are tax-free. There's no upfront tax relief, but it's wholly accessible. After that, wealthier investors will use a variety of structures and we could see family trusts, but more from a giving it away perspective. We often see those with larger sums to invest using vehicles such as companies, maybe partnerships, to hold their wealth and that will be very much determined by the types of assets they're owning. For example, we see a lot of people buying property within companies now and what their intention is for the money in the long term. Um, but for most of us, pensions and ISAs will feature in just about everybody's portfolio.
0: Okay. Now, um, just turning to the next phase, as we was actually in retirement, um, which ones do you draw from first? some of the changes that we've seen
3: in the last few years and especially pension freedoms have almost turned retirement planning on its head. Traditionally, we'd give away non-pension money where we could afford to to mitigate inheritance tax and live on our pensions, drawing down hopefully to exhaust it uh, before the end of our lifetime. But now we've got a situation for those with investment-based pensions where that fund is outside of the estate for inheritance tax under current rules. So in some circumstances where there is greater wealth we see individuals living on their non-pension savings their ISAs their direct investments and actually preserving the pension which can pass tax free to their heirs to their spouse to their children not everybody can do that they need to use their pension fund to live on for what it was intended for their retirement so another efficient way of drawing is to use the tax free cash sum which for most is generally up to 25% of the fund and if that's not needed, for example, for paying off a loan or for any other purpose, to draw some of the pension and some of the tax-free cash together. Because with the great flexibility we have now, we can use all of the various allowances, like the dividend allowance I mentioned, our capital gains tax allowance, some tax-free cash from the pension, as well as taxable pension income. Putting that all together, it's possible to create the desired level of income but perhaps having the taxable element fall into a lower tax rate. So there's so much we can do to plan. And at the end of the day, whether it's capital or income, it's all money to meet the spending need. And most people are very happy to invest for a total return made up of income and capital, if it means they can have a more tax-efficient income in the long run.
0: Okay. Just just one final thought, really. I mean, obviously, there's... You- different investments you can hold. I mean, are some investments held better in some types of wrapper and others? And should you know, the type of investment have any influence on which tax-efficient wrapper you choose? In the main, we should
3: always look at the investments we want to hold first and then make the tax work for us around it. If, for example, somebody has their capital gains allowance completely unused, then I probably wouldn't put higher growth shares in an ISA. I'd use that to hold possibly cash or income producing assets to if the income tax personal allowance is being fully utilized elsewhere so let's look to mitigate the type of tax that would otherwise be payable so high income investments in an isa maybe high growth assets in personal name selling sufficient each year to utilize the capital gains allowance of 12000 and perhaps holding some investments directly to generate enough dividend to use up the 2,000-a-year dividend allowance. So making use of all of these, as I said,
0: can actually enhance the overall result. Okay, thank you, Christine. Some really helpful tips. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle over website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on the effects of the coronavirus on markets investing in China, and appropriate levels of cash. Thank you for listening, and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.